Good morning. You can find your seats. So nice to see all of you. Glad you could be with us this morning. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, where we left off some weeks ago. It's probably been about a month. We pick up our regular series of studies now. Of course, we had our Christmas presentation, our play, and Christmas service, and it's been a few weeks. If you'll remember with me, we had gotten as far as chapter 8, and in chapter 8, God begins to pour out his judgment on the earth. And it's in the form of seven angels blowing seven trumpets. And we looked at the first four the last time we were together, and we saw all types of catastrophe come upon the earth. We saw hail and fire and something like a huge mountain could have even been an asteroid or something like a blazing star, which could have been a comet. And we talked a lot about this. And finally, all of the earth, the the third of the light that, that was on the earth or will be on the earth at that time is obscured. So there's so much atmospheric destruction and the planet has experienced so much in the way of cataclysm. And yet the worst is yet to come. For as we left off the last time we were together in this book, in verse 13 of chapter 8 in the book of Revelation, there was an angel, and the angel cried out, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. So you have these seven angels. We've looked at four already some weeks ago. And now we begin to look at the last three. And today we'll look at two of those last three. As we do, keep in mind, there are far more worse things that can happen to us and even in our world than just cataclysms, destruction. The things that happen in this world, as bad as they can be, whether they be earthquakes or asteroids or hailstones, pale in comparison to the spiritual dangers that we face on a daily basis. Now, things will escalate in the last days, and God will remove the protection on on the people of the earth from the, the demonic and spiritual forces that exist today. As the Holy Spirit is in the world, there is much in the way of restraint enforced upon those spiritual forces. I'm not saying they're not operating. I'm not saying they're not working against the the plans and the purposes of God and his people. I'm not saying that. What I am saying, though, is that today we are seeing a restriction by the Holy Spirit of demonic activity. As bad as things are, they will become far worse. So having said that, I'm not here to depress you. Our message should be encouraging, and it will be, but we're going to talk about some pretty dark things today. But it's all presented in the light of Christ, who is our strength and the power of the Spirit, who empowers us and fills us with the light of God's love and his word, such that we know this truth, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, as we approach this somewhat dark topic, and as we look at the spiritual forces that that currently work against us, but will work against those in the world in the last days in a way that's unprecedented, Lord, we pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be encouraged to open our hearts and our minds to, to you and to all that you have for us. And rather than being frightened, Rather than being terrified of spiritual things, may we stand in victory, the victory of the cross of Jesus Christ, and in confidence knowing that you have overcome the world. And all of the spiritual wickedness in high places that exists is overcome. And we can stand, as your word tells us, in the armor of God and be confident in the victory. We ask that you would continue to speak to us. This morning we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first we're going to look at verse 1. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, or the bottomless pit. And he opened the abyss, and when he opened it, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke, locusts, 
came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. This is a pretty significantly dark portion of scripture to look at. Because it deals with spiritual forces that are beyond our understanding. But it's spoken of in a poetic way. It's spoken of in language, allegorical language, that may be confusing to us at times because, honestly, the, the language that's used is symbolic, is, is, is given to us in a way where we can understand a deeper meaning, not a literal meaning in some cases. So let's start by looking at this. John saw a star. Now, the thing about a star is we obviously know that he didn't see a star like Alpha Centauri. We're not talking about a literal star. So what are we talking about? Well, the Bible gives us some understanding here because it's not a star as we know it. It's what a star represents. It represents an angel, a messenger. It represents a spiritual being. The reason being that in the world that we live in, We understand what a star is, what a planet is. The word planet in Greek means wandering star. We understand there's a difference between a planet and a star and a comet and an asteroid. They had a very simple understanding of stars in the heavens. They saw lights in the sky, and they associated them with gods. They associated them with angels and messengers. They associated them with with spiritual things. It's because they didn't have a complete or total understanding of what those things were. Interestingly enough, when you study the book of Job, you realize that there was an astronomical understanding, an understanding of the universe that was given to mankind early on, but over time, myth and story and legend replaced the science that mankind actually had going back to the time of the garden. So we sort of dumbed down over time. Uh, But what happened here in this this message here that, that John is receiving is he's using language that anyone could understand. And if you were alive at that time, you would understand this as an angel. In fact, angels are referred to allegorically as stars in the scripture, both in the book of Revelation and in the book of Job. Now, this angel, this messenger, that's the word angel. It it, it means messenger. Had fallen. Notice, had fallen. The language is very clear. Had fallen, not fell. Had fallen from heaven to earth. So this this happened in the past. At some point in the past, this angel had fallen. So we're talking about a fallen angel. And I believe this is a veiled reference to Satan himself. If you read the scriptures, if you're familiar with Isaiah 14 or even Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, speaking again in the past. We'll talk more about this in the future, but we do understand that Satan fell as an angel. He fell from heaven, fell from his place of serving God. And he still has access, as we'll see when we get to chapter 12, before the throne of God, where we also see him in the book of Job in chapter 1, accusing us, God's people, before the throne of God. But that's a different study. I just want to stay focused on this. This angel, this messenger, more than likely Satan himself, was given the key to open the abyss. That was, he was given permission and the ability to free certain spiritual beings from a place of imprisonment. Now let's talk about these terms, the abyss or the bottomless pit. It's a demonic prison. It's a place that Jesus actually sent demons at times. It is, it is the place where Jesus had the power to send demons when he walked the earth. And certainly those who were empowered by him today, they cast out demons, send them into this place of the abyss. How all of this works is very hard to understand But it's important to note, the truth is, there is a place where demons can be imprisoned. It's called the abyss. Now, why would you imprison demons there? Well, to prevent them from interacting with people on the earth. But in this case, we see the purpose of imprisoning them there is that at some point they will be released for God's purposes. Now, I want you to think about how wicked this world is. It's incredibly dark. It's incredibly wicked. There's so much spiritual wickedness in high places. And we see the evidence of demonic activity, possession, 
oppression, influence in our world at very high levels, maybe not necessarily more than in the past, but all you need to do is look at the world and the way the world works and the powers that run the world, and you can very quickly come to the conclusion that Satan is alive and well and that there are demons influencing all that goes on in our world. Now, I don't believe there's a demon under every rock. I just know that you can see when people believe some of the things that they believe today, there's simply no other explanation then they've been deceived by spiritual wickedness, evil spirits. So, now, yes, Jesus had the power to send demons into the abyss, and this place is a place of fiery torment for those evil spirits, and they would prefer not to be there. In fact, they expressed that when communicating with Jesus when he walked the earth. So now we know what we're talking about, the bottomless pit, the abyss, And we're told that smoke rose from the opened abyss like a gigantic furnace and darkened the sun and the sky. Now, this is a vision, and this particular portion of Scripture isn't so much literal as it is a spiritual insight into the spiritual realm. And we're going to see that in the last days, God is going to allow all of those evil spirits and demonic influence in our world at a level that we we just don't even begin to. We cannot begin to understand. We don't have any idea what this is going to be like. Now, I don't want you to think we're at this place today. We're not. As bad as things are, we're not there yet. Imagine, though, a world where there are no restrictions on demonic influence. There are restrictions today. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Amen? So I don't want anybody worried about demons. Because if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You don't need to worry about this. Yes, God allows spiritual forces in high places and in our world to influence the world, but we are protected in God's spirit from those things. Not that we don't experience the consequences of a fallen world. But when we understand it this way, imagine, though, when the Holy Spirit takes the church into heaven, and just like the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost... There'll come a day, the day of the rapture, where the Holy Spirit will take his church into heaven. And the presence of the Holy Spirit will be very different than it is today. He won't be dwelling in his people the way he does today. That restraining force will be removed. And when that happens, God is also going to allow Satan to unleash a horde, a swarm of demonic activity. And that's what we're seeing here. Now, John saw what he described as locusts. Why would he say locusts? They're not locusts. Why would he say locusts? Because he's trying to describe to us in physical terms that we and he could understand what it looked like. Locust swarm. If you've ever seen a a swarm of locusts or even a flock of birds, you understand there's a movement to that, and that's what he's describing, but they're clearly not literal locusts. In fact, they come down upon the earth from the smoke of the abyss. So the smoke wasn't smoke. It was the spiritual eyes that John was given to see. These demonic spirits come from this place, make their way like a swarm of locusts into the world, and actually begin to affect mankind on a large scale. Now they're also described as having the power of scorpions. So you can see these are these are analogies. These are metaphors. These are things that are given to us to help us to understand what they're like, not literally what they are. I want to read something to you. When I first started studying this portion of scripture, I looked up, because I don't ever want to find out, but I did look up what it's like to be stung by a scorpion. Individuals who have been stung typically are extremely restless and jittery. Young children writhe, jerk, and flail about in a bizarre manner that suggests a convulsion. Their movements are completely involuntary. However, in spite of their constantly moving bodies, they can talk. That description of a scorpion bite very accurately describes what we would call demonic possession. It's not hard to imagine that. If you've ever seen a movie, and I don't suggest you watch those movies... One in particular that came out in the 70s that I definitely do not recommend you see. 
You will find that this description of a scorpion bite is extremely accurate to the way that demon possession is often depicted in film, but specifically has been witnessed in our world throughout the centuries. So that's the reason for the scorpion. That's the reason for the scorpion sting. And that's why that description is given to us, the locust given to describe the spiritual swarm. It, it, it leaves an impression. It's, it's not a pleasant thought. But we're also told <clears throat> that these scorpions have the power to torment men with their stings. So I think we understand what we're talking about. By the way, locusts in the Bible throughout the Old Testament are agents of God's judgment. Whenever God works through a swarm of locusts or a plague of locusts, it's God's judgment. This is God's judgment. So the symbols of the locusts and the scorpions are accurate and very helpful to understanding what we're talking about. Now, these locusts, which are really spirits, were told not to harm the earth's vegetation, but that's exactly what actual locusts do. It's a way of telling us we're not talking about locusts. They were told to harm those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Now, I don't need to tell you, if you've ever read your New Testament, those of you who are Christians, that the seal of God is the promise of God, the Holy Spirit. So if you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you by faith, if you belong to Jesus Christ, there is no possible way that you could ever be possessed by an evil spirit or a demon. I do not want anyone here to think for a minute that you could have the spirit of the living God in you, that you could be a Christian and somehow share space or sublet to Satan. It's not going to happen. Having said that, any Christian that has ever prayed, read their word, or tried to serve God knows that spiritual forces of wickedness stand against us when we serve God. But Jesus also told us that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. So I'm not sitting up here in the dark with a flashlight telling you spooky stories around the campfire. I'm telling you what will happen in the future and describing some of what happens on a very small scale today. Yes, by comparison, the demonic activity we see in our world today and even that which Jesus witnessed was small in comparison to what will happen in the last days. In fact, one of the reasons I don't think <clears throat> we see the same level of spiritual activity in, in demonic possession that Jesus and his apostles saw in their day is they cast out, they casted out a lot of demons. They did a lot of work and the Holy Spirit came down upon people and worked through his disciples, worked through Jesus. And a lot of this was cleaned up 2,000 years ago. So where did all those demons go that they cast out? I mean, when you read the scriptures, the apostles are out there two by two doing this very thing and the disciples go out 70 in number and then after Jesus who cast out many demons in his ministry during those three and a half years, after he rises from the dead, he sends his church in the power of the Spirit to do the same thing. And we read in Mark's Gospel that they would cast out demons and heal and speak in tongues. There comes a point where the church made a difference in the world by removing a lot of this. Where did it all go? Well, now we know. They've been put aside in a place where God is going to ultimately release them from. But for now, aren't we glad that we don't live in a world like that? Or even the, the world of the first century where there was demonic activity in ways that, <clears throat> thankfully, we've never seen. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, but Pastor Tim, out on the mission field, you see a lot of this. Yes, you do. You see much more of this than you see in our world today. In fact, what could the possibility be that because in places where the church is strong, or at least the church is present, and the gospel is preached, would it surprise you to know that many of those spirits would prefer to be in a place of darkness, where there is no gospel preached, or where there aren't many people filled with the spirit? So I think what you're seeing today is, yes, there's demonic activity, but it's more isolated to the areas where the church is not present, where people, spirit-filled Christians, are not ministering. And I think that's the simple answer to why we don't see the same level of spiritual darkness that we saw in the past through the Bible and through the Gospels. 
Having said that, I think a lot of demons just ran for office. Wore a three-piece suit. Joined the Democratic Party. You know, demon is in that Democrat. It's a joke. It's a joke. Don't get all worked out. You know I'm an independent, right? So, either side. There's lots of demonic influence in leaders throughout the world, whether you're talking about a King Jong-un or a president that can't remember who the president is. I think what we understand is that there is a lot of demonic activity, but it's different in our country. It, it's, it's different than this. But a day will come where this is the kind of thing that the world is going to experience. And it's awful. And it's horrific. It's right out of a horror movie. But notice, <clears throat> those that had the seal of God on their foreheads couldn't be harmed by this. But those that didn't, were. And I think even today, even though there's a limited amount of this demonic activity, even today, if you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you by faith, the scripture says, not me, the scripture says that Satan can take you captive to do his will. Now, I don't believe that a little girl is going to be possessed by a demon in the attic. I I don't buy into that. But I'll tell you what, when you open the door to demonic activity, and you don't know Christ, whether it's with Ouija boards or spiritualism, seances, occult activity, there is, there, there is no, no way that you can't, at that point, open up the door. You will open up the door to the spiritual realm. And I can't tell you what will happen, but I can tell you none of it will be good. Well, let's move on. In this day... These demons, these evil spirits, are given the power to torture men for five months. For five months. With an agony like the sting of a scorpion. And we we know what that is. And even so, their victims will long to die, but these evil spirits will keep them alive in constant torment. If there's ever been motivation to come to Christ, that's probably part of it right there. Why would you want to be controlled and tortured by evil spirits when you can be filled with and empowered and protected by the Holy Spirit. Well, John described these locusts, these demons, and and I'll be honest, the the description is, is pretty horrific as well. He described these demons that came down upon the earth from the smoke of the abyss. And in verse 7, The locusts looked like. Now, whenever you see looked like, it means that they weren't these things. John is just using vocabulary to help us to understand what he saw. If you had to describe a hippopotamus and you'd never seen one before, how would you do that? You probably would have to use words that both of the people that were communicating could understand. So that's the case here. And we read the locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, that is long, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel or the messenger of the abyss or the bottomless pit, whose name is, in Hebrew, Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollyon. That's just the only time in the scripture where we're given any indication of what the name of the devil might be. But it's not really his name. It's a description of his character. Some people say Lucifer, that means son of the morning. That's just a description from the book of Isaiah. That doesn't have anything to do with the name of Satan. We're actually never given Satan's name. And I'm glad because if I knew it, I wouldn't use it. Certainly wouldn't name someone that same name, right? So why is, why is everybody so obsessed with knowing these things? Because people are curious. And I caution you because curiosity killed the cat. You have to be very careful about the curiosity that can come from a study like this. It can lead you into darkness. Be very careful. But having said that, these descriptions, Abaddon and Apollyon, they're simply 
descriptions that mean destroyer. And I don't think there's a more apt description of Satan than destroyer. Satan, the name's devil or accuser, uh, Satan, adversary, the dragon, the serpent. All of these are just descriptions of this evil being we know to be the devil. And this is yet another description in two languages, the destroyer. Okay. These demons, they seem to be well prepared. They swiftly rush to harm mankind. I mean, that's why they're released and they're very happy to oblige. We're told they wore something on their heads like crowns as a sign of their authority over mankind. They had human faces, although they were grotesque. Long hair and lion's teeth showing that they're intelligent, but they're vicious. And they wore strong armor and were highly organized, sort of a winged invasion force, because God has allowed them to affect men and women on the earth who are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. They had the power to sting with their tails like scorpions, as we've said, and torture men for five months. So imagine five months during the last seven years, and specifically the last three and a half years of tribulation. Imagine for five months, anyone that doesn't know Jesus being demon-possessed, as described in the sting of a scorpion. Pretty dark, pretty bleak future for those that reject Christ. Well, John identified their king, the king of the locusts, if you will, the king of these demons, the messenger of the abyss, same fallen angel that opened the abyss and released these demons, the destroyer, that very accurate description, I believe, of Satan. These demons couldn't actually be locusts, by the way, because they they have a king. And we're told in the book of Proverbs, in chapter 30, verse 27, the locusts don't have a king. See, bees have a queen. Locusts don't have a king. They're not locusts. That's the point I'm trying to make. Some people read this and they come to the conclusion it's going to be a plague of locusts. If you ever see locusts like this, look again, okay? Spiritual descriptions of spiritual things using language that John was comfortable using to describe things that no one, not any of us, has ever seen. But you got the point, right? You understand what we're being told here. Now, John recognized that the first woe had passed. Remember, the the angel broke it down. He said there were seven trumpets, but the first four trumpets are talked about, and then the last three is the three woes. Well, we just looked at the first of those woes can understand why these are especially horrific. And we read in verse 12, the first woe is past, the two other woes are yet to come. And we'll look at one more this morning. As we get to the next section, there's a temptation to look at some of the descriptions and spiritualize it, because we had no choice but to spiritualize the descriptions of demons, because demons are not physical, they are spiritual. Evil spirits don't have an actual body, they inhabit bodies. We're going to talk a little bit about the difference between demons and fallen angels. You see, there was a distinction there between Satan and the demons. Satan was described, I believe, as that fallen angel, that star. And then these demons are described as spirits. And now we're going to talk about more fallen angels. So you're getting sort of a a primer or a, a course on spiritual things today, not to overly fascinate you with spiritual things, but to draw you closer to God and to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be protected against such things, which do exist and will exist in greater number and greater force during the last days. Okay, let's take a look at verses 13 through 15, actually. Well, the sixth angel, we're told, sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the altar, the golden altar, that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels. Now notice these are not spirits. These are four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So for five months, mankind is tortured by these evil spirits And then we're told, and they want to die, but for five months they're tortured. And then four angels are released, and their motive, their desire, their intent 
is to bring about the death of a third of those people who have been tortured for the last five months. Does this sound like a world you want to live in? I'm glad to say you won't have to for two reasons. Number one, I believe the church will be long gone by that time. But even if the church were present on the earth, they'll be protected the way Israel will be protected during that time. If you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, regardless of whether you're on the earth during this time, and there will be those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit who are alive at that time, or you're a member of the church and you're raptured into heaven, you need to understand, with the Holy Spirit, you don't need to worry about these things, today or then even. And that's the most encouraging thing I can leave with you. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, Pastor Tim, I don't know if I have the Holy Spirit. Well, then let's take care of that. Let's make sure that you understand that no one calls him Lord but by the Spirit. That is, you need to come to Jesus because there are far worse things than earthquakes and hailstorms and asteroids and comets. There are far worse things that can happen to you in this world than natural disasters or even supernatural disasters. You see, if a comet is coming to earth and it hits me, I know where I'm going. And I know no demon can touch me. And I know no fallen angel can harm me. I know that God is with me. Do you know that? Say amen. See, I told you these messages would be encouraging. But that's a very scary message to someone who's rejected Jesus Christ, as well it should be. But for those of us who know Christ, what an encouragement to know that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That you need not fear The devil, demons, fallen angels, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. Because God is with us, the Holy Spirit in us, and we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. I feel powerful now, you know? Like Popeye when he ate his spinach. I feel almost almost untouchable, invulnerable, impervious to spiritual forces. Oh, Pastor Tim, don't say that. No, I'm not superstitious. I just know that God is in me. And if God is in me, if God is with me, who then shall I fear? See, I don't run around worried about demons. I don't vote for them, but I don't worry about them either. I don't spend my time looking for them or casting them out because I know that Christ is with me, in me, working through me. The demons flee from a man or a woman of God filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you understand that? You're their worst nightmare. You're Christ on earth. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But there are spiritual forces of wickedness. We're going to learn a little bit about some more here. Well, we've just read that John heard a voice coming from the golden incense altar before the throne of God in heaven. We've talked about this before. There is a throne of God in heaven. There is a temple or tabernacle of sorts in heaven of which the earthly is a copy. And he sees this or he hears this voice. And the sixth angel is told to release these four angels. We're given a number, which is interesting. With the demons, we're just told locusts. We're just told innumerable numbers of them. But here we're told four angels, and we're told where they are. They're bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I'm not Indiana Jones, and I have no intention of leading an expedition to find them. And I don't believe that you could if you tried. Although it would make for another good installment of Steven Spielberg, you know, and George Lucas's uh, series. But... This supernatural truth that there are four angels bound somewhere near the river Euphrates even today is a frightening thought, but it's kind of curious as well. It's strange to think that this is true. And God himself, God's voice from the altar, commands this angel to release these fallen angels. Why? Because they're on God's side? No. Because he is allowing mankind at this time in the future to experience the spiritual darkness they embrace. When you reject Christ and you open up your heart to evil spirits and fallen angels and Satan himself, and there are people that do this even today, there is no telling the wickedness and awfulness that you will experience 
And it explains a lot of the behavior we see in our world today. Have you ever read the newspaper that said, what in the world is that person insane? How could they possibly do that? How could they, how could they do that? Well, there's your answer. I think mankind is capable of such evil, and yet the evil we see in our world today, you can't help but notice it. It has to be inspired by something spiritual, something dark and wicked. Well, these fallen angels, we're told, are bound by God in an earthly prison, in an earthly prison, and this prison is located in the Middle East. Well, not surprising, because the area in or under the Euphrates is the cradle of early civilization, according to Genesis. It is also the site of the Tower of Babel, Babylon itself. It's the center of false religions, all false religions, and all world dictatorships. This is a very very primitive place, but it's also at the center of all of the wickedness that we've ever seen come into our world. So it's not surprising that this would be the place that God would allow these four angels to be bound. But they are bound. Thank God for that. We've had enough problems in our world today without four angels, fallen angels running around. But they're being kept ready. And the Euphrates River, we're told when we get to Revelation 16, is going to be dried up during the sixth bowl judgment. We'll talk about that. And this will prepare a thoroughfare, a highway, for a huge Eastern Asian army to come and attack Israel. Now, that hasn't happened yet, but that, that's, the Euphrates is at the center of a lot of what happens in the last days. We'll talk more about that. But these four beings are not evil spirits. I don't want you to be confused. They're fallen angels. They have a physical form. Otherwise, why would they be physically bound in an earthly prison? So there's a distinction here. Most people don't make the distinction between fallen angels and evil spirits or demons, but they're very different things. In fact, I'm going to give you a very quick understanding of what we believe to be the origin of fallen angels and evil spirits or demons from the Scripture. From the scripture. First of all, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we're told that before the flood, certain angels came to earth. They came to earth and they cohabitated with women. You say, what? I never read that. Well, then you never read Genesis 6. Because that's what happened. They're called the sons of God. They're even called the sons of God or the Benai Elohim in the book of Job. And they married women, human women, called the Bathadam in Hebrew, which means the daughters of Adam, the daughters of men. Now, angels don't marry in heaven. Jesus told us that. But these are angels that fell to earth. They change significantly enough to actually have some interaction with human beings. I know this sounds like a fairy tale. In fact, it sounds like mythology. You know what? The fairy tales and the mythology are based on truth. I'm not saying the myths are real. I'm saying they're based on something that actually happened. Does that make sense? That every world culture would have these stories and these accounts from their legends and their history slightly different over time. The telling changed things, but there must be some original source because all these cultures go back to this idea of demigods and Hercules who's half God and half man. Where do you think they came up with those ideas? Oh, I'm not saying Hercules is real. I'm saying the mythology and the legends and the stories and the myth- all those myths are based on something that we know happened because the Bible tells us it happened. The world is stranger than you thought, right? Well, listen. Because of this, mankind's judgment for sin was the flood. Why would God flood the earth? Well, now you have a better understanding as to why. It came 120 years after these events when the sons of God, the angels, became married to the daughters of men, and they had children, to make it even more creepy. They were called the Nephilim, which in Hebrew means the fallen ones. They were like the demigods of mythology in that their fathers were fallen angels, and their mothers were daughters of men. They were human beings. And these creatures, these unholy offspring of fallen angels and mankind, lived during the 120 years before the flood, but the flood killed them because they were mortal. 
And if you look at all the myths, the demigods could always be killed, the gods could not be. There's a reason for that. And, and mythology, I, I'm a student of mythology. I've loved it ever since I was a kid. The thing that fascinated me was that the more I learned about God's word, the more I realized mythology wasn't just a story. It, they were stories based on truth. That are the source of mythology, all mythology, is a truth that some of these things actually happened. Now, they weren't demigods. They were the offspring of fallen angels and mankind. They were mighty heroes, and they provide the source of all the ancient myths. But the spirits, what happened to the spirits of these Nephilim? What were the Nephilim? They were the unholy offspring. They were the fallen ones. What happened to their spirits? Their spirits weren't like the spirits that we have because they weren't just men. They were something else, hybrid, if you will. They were Nephilim fallen ones, they were called. They were the offspring of these angels. And I've always wondered how many angels came to earth. It seems that only four did. But four could do a lot of damage. Four could. But there were lots of Nephilim. Over 120 years, children, maybe begetting children. Ultimately, during those 120 years, things got so awful on the earth that in the book of Genesis... We're told that the thoughts of mankind were evil continually. Well, why would that happen? Well, at this point, the human race, the population of the human race, had been corrupted by the seed of fallen angels. So are are you beginning to understand why God had to wipe it clean? People look at the flood and they say, how could a loving God do that? I can tell you, if God forbid my house was overrun by cockroaches. I mean, overrun. I'd burn it down before I'd move back in. God brought the flood to cleanse the earth and give mankind a chance. So now you will look at the flood differently, I think. At least I hope you will. It was the mercy of God that brought the judgment of the flood. So, I don't know what happened to the spirits of the Nephilim, They may not have been restricted to Hades like the spirits of mankind. But this could account for the origin of disembodied evil spirits. In fact, that's what we believe. Every culture has ghost stories, ghosts, evil spirits. Where did that concept come from? Well, these very well may be the demons that continue to influence mankind today. In fact, this would clearly explain why they have such a strong desire to possess a physical body. They lost theirs in the flood. I think when you look at it, it starts to make a lot of sense. That's not the point of our study today, but it gives you an understanding of the spiritual realm in which we live. There are fallen angels. There are these spirits, evil spirits. What happened to the angels, the four angels? Well, in 2 Peter chapter 2, see, Genesis chapter 6 is not the only place that talks about these beings. In 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, the angels were bound, we're told, and prevented from further cohabitation. That's why you don't see any more Nephilim. They've been bound. In fact, the word for the prison that they're bound in is called Tartaron in the Greek. It's the word Tartarus. It describes in Greek mythology the lowest level of hell. In fact, mythology tells us that Tartarus was as far beneath Hades as heaven is high above the earth. It was the hell of hell. But it's interesting because in the Greek myth... The Greeks identified Tartarus as the prison of the elder gods. They called them titans. So you read your mythology and you learn about titans, elder gods, who are imprisoned on earth. Where do you think they got that idea from? I'm not saying titans are real, but I'm saying fallen angels are. Many of these myths are just poetic descriptions of ancient events, and you have to understand that. We're told there by Peter that they were bound in gloomy dungeons and held for judgment, which lines up exactly with what we read here in the book of Revelation. Held for judgment, to be released, to bring about the judgment of mankind. God still has a purpose in working through these fallen angels. Now, Jude, in verse 6 of the book of Jude, also talks about these angels. So you have four places in scripture where they're talked about. These angels were bound by God in darkness, held for judgment of the great day, Jude says. We're told they left their God-given position of authority, principality, and origin. That is, they left heaven, they came to earth. They abandoned their habitation, Jude says. That is, their dwelling place, their, their, their spiritual bodies to become human. Uh, 
You've probably seen this in movies and read books. This is a very common theme that shows up throughout mankind's history. But they are bound, as were the titans of Greek mythology, with, as the scripture says, everlasting chains. Chains that cannot be broken, according to Jude. And they will be bound there in Tartarus until God chooses to release them. What we're seeing here in this prophecy is the moment when that happens. Okay, that's enough. You're already probably going to sleep with the light on tonight. What's their point? What's their purpose? To kill a third of mankind. How are they going to do that? Well, I imagine they could just, you know, grab a set of nunchaku and go out there and start killing people. I I imagine they could get swords and come out and chop everybody's head off, but they do it much more efficiently. They raise a huge eastern army. Same army that I think is described when we get to the sixth bowl judgment as crossing the Euphrates. But when the four fallen angels are released, they bring with them a huge army. Look at verses 16 through 21. The number of the mounted troops. These mounted troops are linked to these four angels. The number of the mounted troops was 200 million. 200 million. I heard their number, John says. And then we have a description. Now, I want you to imagine you're in the first century and you're John and you've never seen a tank. You've never seen a missile launcher. You've never seen, you know, uh, uh, B-2 bombers. You, you've never seen nuclear weapons. You've never seen any of that. And so you're going to try to describe what you're watching, what you're seeing, with terms that, of warfare that you do understand. And I want you to, in your mind's eye, to imagine what could he be talking about. Things we see on the news all the time, but things that he would have never seen or could even begin to imagine or describe. He says the horses, by the way, in the original language, they're leapers, the horses, leapers. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. That is, they weren't this. They looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur, A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of the fire, smoke, and sulfur. They came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murderers, their sorcery or their magic arts, original language, pharmakia, drug use, where we get the word pharmacy from, or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Brief description of what we're seeing here. 200 million mounted troops. And he begins to describe the weapons that they use to kill a third of mankind. Now, the vocabulary of warfare describes modern weapons very easily. Not actual horses and riders. They're tanks, planes, missile launchers. If you look at the description, it's pretty obvious. Their breastplates are marked with the colors of their flags. And their heads are like lions. They roar like lions, firing large caliber weaponry. Their mouths fire ammunition. Launch missiles, issuing fire, smoke, and sulfur. This is exactly what we see in modern warfare. These modern weapons were used to kill billions of lives. Not hard to imagine in a world that saw two world wars over the last hundred years. He uses his limited vocabulary to describe what appears to be modern missiles. Snake-like trailing missiles launched by this army. Warheads that explode in the air and impact, inflicting tremendous injury. And then he described the behavior of those that described the devastation of these weapons. And this is the most surprising part of this entire chapter. To be honest, to be frank, I'm not surprised by demons or fallen angels bound at the river Euphrates. It doesn't surprise me that mankind would find a way to kill a third of itself using modern weapons. This doesn't surprise me at all. But what shocks me is that they didn't repent. The survivors of this devastation will not repent of their rebellion against God. I mean, with all of that happening, you think the first thing someone might say is, "Um, I'd like to repent. I mean, at the first sign of demonic activity, somebody might have said, yeah, I'm out. 
At the first sign of all the modern weaponry destroying the earth and people killing each other, you think someone might find Jesus in that moment? Remember, things will be different in that day. Many of these people will give their heart and their soul to Satan. They'll be so blinded, they'll, they'll believe things that the media tells them. They'll believe things that no one else would believe. Have you ever found yourself saying, how do these people believe this stuff? When you rebel against God, you might just believe anything. The scripture makes that clear. These individuals alive at that time will not repent of their rebellion against God. They will continue to worship demons through idolatry. They will continue to murder and abuse drugs. They will continue to practice sexual immorality and even steal from others. Basically, it sounds like any modern city that you could live in today. And I think what we're beginning to see is, even if the things we see in our world are not specifically the result of demonic activity, they are the result of individuals who reject Jesus Christ. So, what is the answer for the world today? What is the answer to deal with spiritual wickedness in high places? What is the answer in dealing with spiritual forces of wickedness in our world? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Lord Heavenly Father, we need you. And those of us who know you and have you in our hearts by faith, And through the power of the Holy Spirit, live our lives for you as you live your life through us. We don't fear. We fear you. We revere you. But we don't fear anything in this world. We don't fear what the world could do to us. All this world can do is kill our physical bodies. But it can't destroy us in hell. We've been saved. By Jesus' death on the cross, we've been saved, set free, protected from spiritual forces of wickedness. We can stand in the armor of God. But Lord, this, this world is lost. And there are so many that we love and care for and pray for that still continue to reject you to their own peril. They don't know you. They're not saved. They're going to spend eternity in hell. But they may experience hell on earth first. And Lord, we don't desire that to be the case. We desire that all men and women would repent and give their lives to Jesus Christ, that they might be saved not just from demons and fallen angels and the wickedness of this world, but saved from the judgment that comes upon anyone who rejects Jesus Christ, saved for eternity, to spend eternity in your presence because of the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his promise to come again to bring new life to all of us. Oh, Lord God, we're not concerned for ourselves. We're, we're saved. You've saved us. We don't doubt that. But, Lord, we know that we know that we know that there are so many that don't know this truth. May we leave here having looked into the spiritual realm enough to know that these things are real, may we leave here today with the mission being to share our faith with those that don't know you. And Lord, give us wisdom and understanding and the power of your spirit to be able to present that gospel message to all those that need to hear it. And Lord, may they respond. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.